Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you bring us here today that we may come to worship to you, worship you as a family, that we may learn from one another, that we may learn from you, and that we can learn through your word how we can come closer to you and how you have brought each one of us closer to you. Lord, we invite in the Holy Spirit and we ask you to bless this service. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Cling and hope. The Lord will be a shelter for his people. The late British historian Arnold Tonaby gave his personal slogan to the world when he said, Cling and hope. In other words, he said, all the ideals that we've held on for years are crumbling all around us, but he advised the human race to cling and hope. But to what? Millions cling to the wreckage that they have made of their lives, thinking they have nowhere else to turn. Others cling to false ideals and deceptive cults. Still others cling to possessions or relationships or pleasures. Yes, Cling and hope, but what if you are clinging to something that is sinking? However, thousands still find refuge from the storms of life by living their faith in the living God. Turn to God in such an hour, as this is the history of the world is not escapism. Multiplied thousands have found faith in Christ is more than just the adequate for the pressures of this hour. The true Christian does more than just cling and hope. He knows that with Christ, he has a secure future forever. Is your hope in him? The hope for today. The hope is in the Lord is not a wishful thinking, but confident expectation. We cling to what we, or what was accomplished on the cross, and we have placed our hope in the one who has never let us down. Good morning. Will the circle be unbroken?
this morning. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. 
you have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For Amen. you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We're going to read Psalm 23 together, if you'll stand with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.
Our New Testament reading today comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now the day of his return is drawing near. You'll join me in our responsive reading. We bless you, God of seed and harvest, and we bless each other that the beauty of this world and the love that created it might be expressed through our lives and be a blessing to others, now and always. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, all belongs to you, all came from you. We know that with just a thought, the universe was created. But you've chosen to give each one of us a part, Let it, and you've sh shared all this with us but you do call for us to give back. So Lord, we ask that the gifts that are given today be done so with an open heart, with the same love as you did, as you have given, shown us. And we ask you to provide the wisdom that they be used in a way that will be pleasing to you. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise with the doxology.
Well, good morning. Lord is good, isn't he? He's good all the time. Uh, let me uh, first of all read, um, and I think it's on there. Didn't I put it on the uh, the the chapter? We've got to, we're in chapter two of Genesis, and uh, I'm going to start with verse four, and we'll just read through verse seventeen. So I'll read it, and then uh, we can pray. Ask the Lord to, to bless us in this uh, in this time. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated. It was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and ox, onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Lord, we thank you and praise you um, that your word brings life. Your word is life, and your word is uh, powerful and able to divide soul and spirit, and, and it is able, Lord, to bring life to our souls, refreshment to our souls. And I pray in Jesus' name, I pray for an anointing this morning, that your word will go forth powerfully as it is, infinite, Lord, and, and unmatched in anything else in all of creation, Lord, is your, is your incredible word. And I pray that your word will go forth with power, with conviction, and, Lord, that we will hear your word this morning, and having heard, Lord, we will obey. We pray in Christ's name. So the first question that comes up is the relationship. Uh, we talked about... Uh, last week, actually, we talked about the uh, first three verses of, of Genesis 2. But we had talked about Genesis 1. And so what's the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? And that, that's the question. Uh, because they both start with, a, with an account. All right? And so uh, what I believe is that chapter 2 begins the history of the human race. So chapter 1 is more about the whole creation, it, you know, it starts with, uh, you know, when there was, uh, uh, it was formless and void, and, and then it goes through the whole creation account. But in chapter 2, now we begin, here's the, here's the human race, God creating the human race. So chapter 1 is a summary statement of the work of creation. Chapter 2 begins the details of the creation of man. Um, and so that's what we'll we'll be talking about. Um, and chapter 2, of course, builds on the foundation of chapter 1. 
Um, so beginning in verse 4, there's a really interesting phenomenon here uh, that in ver chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, there's this, uh, this very unusual, in, in Genesis anyway, very unusual usage of the Hebrew. And it, it's spoken of God as the Lord God. All right. Uh, now that shows up in other places, but it doesn't show up any place else in Genesis except for chapters 2 and chapter 3. And so the, the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim, and Yahweh is the personal name for God, kind of the covenant name for God, and then Elohim is the, is the, the, the more um, uh, word used of God as creator and that kind of thing. But what's unusual is that the two are linked together. Yahweh Elohim. And um, so just an interesting thing. Um, most scholars believe that this count is the account of the creation of man. Genesis 1 is creation of all things. So in chapter 1, Moses related that man, mankind was created. Here he talks about how man is created. And so uh, Yahweh Elohim is used. So the condition of the earth, uh, verses two, 4 and 5. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then it says, And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the God, Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. Okay, so an, an interesting thing, we really know, you know exactly what, what is being referred to here, but there was no rain there was only rain coming up, or water coming up, uh, subterranean water coming up from the earth. So all of the, uh, at, at least at this point in the creation account, um, at least at this point, uh, there is no rain. And then it says, there was also no man to work the ground. So there's no rain, and there's no man to work the ground. Uh, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So it's interesting that it says that man was formed out of the dust of the earth. Now scientists have found that most of our mass as human beings is composed of six elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. If you put all of the elements in man, on those, of, those six, uh, of those six elements, the worth is about $576. Okay. So, and then there's nine more elements, or other, all the other elements, I'm sorry, are worth $9. So you are worth, on the market, $585, according to one person. Okay. So, but the interesting thing is, God created man out of the dust of the earth, and then it says he breathed life into him. And when God breathes his life into us, now we are of infinite worth. Isn't that something? We go from $585 to infinite worth. God sent his son to die for us, and so we have infinite worth in the eyes of God. That's quite a, quite a jump in price and <laughs> worth. <clears throat> so, it says that God breathed in him the breath of life. So, man is unique in God's creation. 
Now all the animals are given life, but man, it's only man that's talked about as being made in the image of God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But then we see God's provision in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Um, So the first part that's interesting is that God planted Eden. Um, He actually planted it, and he created man, and he put man into the garden. So notice his loving care for provision. And he also gave man the ability, he says, to work and take care of the garden. Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I find it interesting here that God says that he created all these trees and they were, they were, there were two things about them. They were pleasing to look at. Isn't that interesting? That God didn't create a garden, a place where we could get food, but he was concerned about you know, our visual and concerned about beauty and creating beauty. Uh, Psalm 27 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then it says this phrase, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And God is interested not just in our provision of food, but he's interested in providing that which is beautiful. And scripture says that God himself is actually beautiful. And and so, you know, for you artists and so on, God is interested in beauty. He's interested and we are, you know, we... We, God works through us in creating things of beauty. If you're a painter or if you're a, you know, if you're a carpenter and you're, you're fashioning wood together to create beautiful things, we are actually cooperating with God in creating beauty. And God is a God interested in aesthetics. Isn't that, isn't that something? God is interested in aesthetics. And then it says in verses, going back to verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted, now this is interesting, planted a garden in the east. Now the word in the Hebrew is more of a, the, the word is gan, and it actually is talking more about a park-like setting. It's, you know, what we think of in the English, from the English, is that we're talking about a vegetable garden. God made a beautiful vegetable garden and and made it so that it would grow and so on, so that we could have food. But God actually created a park. And Eden was a beautiful place. And I, I uh, grabbed a couple of images. This is, how many of you ever been to Bouchard Gardens? Up in British Columbia. I never have, my, but our daughter has been up there. And said, she just, I mean, she's not one who loves nature that way, but she, she just raved about uh, Bouchard Garden. She says it's absolutely beautiful. Well, this is this is one um, you know one picture of it. There's another one. The next slide is another one. Um, but I, I, when I think of what God created in the Garden of Eden, I think of this kind of thing. 
God created a beautiful, beautiful place, a beautiful, beautiful park <clears throat> that was pleasing both for food, really good food, really nutritious food and so on, but also beautiful to the eyes. Um, you know, there's a number of them, like uh, how many have ever been to the, uh, the, <clears throat> the landscaping around uh, Versailles and some of those places? Uh, some really beautiful places where you can see the handiwork. That's, that's the kind of place that God creates because God loves beauty. Next thing we, we learn here is that it says that um, the garden, that the water flowed from Eden into the garden. So it's not necessarily that the garden was in Eden. It might have been that the, that the water flowed from Eden. Let me, let me read, uh, go back to the, to the um, text here. Uh, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man in for him. And the Lord made a, no, that's not in, in, not in verse 9. Um, it's in 10? Okay, read it. Oh, here it is. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. So, so there, was a, there was a river in Eden that flowed into the garden, even though we call it the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's known as that in the, uh, throughout Scripture. But the Garden of Eden comes from a Ugaritic word. It means to enrich or make abundant. So there was an abundant water supply, and so there was rich foliage with all kinds of trees. And the word in the Septuagint, you know what the Septuagint is? I'll bet John knows. <laughs> John, tell us, what is the Septuagint? Yeah, it's, it's the Hebrew translation into Greek, and that's probably what the uh, apostles used, was this Greek Septuagint when they, uh, when they, you know, when Jesus came on the earth. And, but the word that's used in the Septuagint is paradisis, which is what we get our word paradise from. So God created paradise, and that's where you get all this, you know, talk of paradise when people talk about the Garden of Eden. Um, so Isaiah 51.3, The Lord God will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, or like, or like paradise, her wastelands, like the Garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the sound of singing. Ezekiel 36, this is what the sovereign Lord says, on that day I will cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. They will say, this land that has, was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. All right, so they point back to it, and they, you know, and they talk about this paradise. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. So, so what we believe then is that heaven is going to be very much like the Garden of Eden. So there's kind of, it, 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 it comes around and we actually see then the Garden of Eden, paradise being created, and then in the book of Revelation then, again it says that it is like the Garden of Eden. Um, and this is out of Randy Alcorn's, uh, any of you read, probably some of you read his, his book called Heaven. Ever read that? Okay. Well, this is out of here, and I'm just going to give you an idea. And I have a, 
a um, insert there that you can look at. We're not going to go through that whole thing, or we'll be here about three hours. But, but I do want to give that to you so you can see it. But he says this. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have original mankind. Mankind is created, Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden. And then there's the present. So the Genesis 1 and 2 are original man, and then there's Genesis 3. Genesis 3 through Revelation chapter 20 are the in-between time, the time of redemption. And then God is going to renew and restore the Garden of Eden, paradise, in Revelation 21, 22, are all talking about the restoration of all things. So we had original mankind and then resurrected mankind. Original earth, and then in the future, there'll be a new, new heaven and a new earth, and so on. Um, do the next one. Uh, they, there was no shame in the beginning. Adam and Eve were without shame. Uh, then there's shame in the in-between time, the time of redemption. And then there's no shame or potential shame and so on. Uh, we won't go through all of those. But what we're saying is this, that God, the whole plan of redemption takes place between Genesis chapter, starting chapter 3, and it goes all the way to Revelation chapter through chapter 20. That's the time of redemption, Christ coming to pay for the price for our sins, but then the new heavens and the new earth will be created and it will be restored, that original creation, that, that Edenic paradise will then be restored in the new heaven and the earth. So that's kind of the, the big picture of scripture. Revelation 21, one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. With them. They will be his people. And listen to this. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay? So it comes from God being, walking with man in the garden then this whole in-between time, and then in the end, God again is going to walk with his people. <clears throat> he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now we have tears in our eyes. There's pain and suffering and all kinds of junk that happens all the time. But in the end, when we go be with Jesus for eternity, there, every tear is going to be wiped from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So that's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, what, what God is doing. Revelation 22. <clears throat> then the angel showed me the water, the river of the water of life. Very interesting. So what he's doing here is going back to this, this uh, river, the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and saying, here it is again. It's clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So that's the big picture of what, of what uh, is going to happen. Now, Andy Alcorn says this. He says, if the wrong side of heaven can be so beautiful, 
what will the right side look like? Yeah, I love that statement. If the wrong side of heaven can be so beautiful, that, that paradise, what will the right side look like? Wow. And he says in his book, every joy on earth, including the joy of reunion, is an inkling, a whisper of great, greater joy. Whenever we see beauty in wind, water, flower, deer, man, woman, or child, we, kept, we catch a glimpse of heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight. <coughs> we just talked about the beauty that God created in the Garden of Eden. That's going to be recreated and there'll be sensory delight. Everything that you know, our senses <coughs> love are going to be recreated in this new heaven and the new earth. Breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. Wow. C.S. Lewis said, <coughs> we want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see. To pass through it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. That's what God is going to do. <clears throat> we're not just going to see it. We're going to be a part of it. Wow. Well, then it says, verses uh, 10 through 14. Excuse me. <clears throat> a, water, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. <clears throat> the name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, you know, people ask, where is the Garden of Eden? Or where was it? You know, it's not a, we know it's not anymore, but where was it? Well, two of those rivers, the Gihon and the, and the um, Pishon, we don't know where they were. Um, and so here's a couple of, uh, here's a, a couple of maps. So there's two different concepts of where the Garden of Eden was. All right? One of them is up in, you see up in Turkey there, uh, Erzurum, Elias, um, up, up kind of in Armenia. Some people put it in Armenia, some people put it in Turkey. But it's in eastern Turkey, what's eastern Turkey today. And then the other would be down on the lower where the circle is there, uh, down toward the Gulf, okay? And we don't know. Uh, it says they, it was near where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. We know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, but we don't know where the other two are. And that's where the confusion comes in. Um, <clears throat> personally, I think it's probably, okay, and here's another, uh, another two, you know, slide of the same one. But that's what's called the Fertile Crescent, or, or what we call Mesopotamia, or meso meaning between, and potamia meaning rivers, between the land between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, <clears throat> we've been out there numerous times um, in, in that region. Uh, there's another slide of it, and there's one more. Um, go ahead, Tom. Uh, and so you can see it's kind of, you can see where the Euphrates is and then the Tigris, 
So somewhere up in that area. If we knew where the other two rivers were, we could, we could identify it. But we don't know. <clears throat> but it's somewhere out in that region. Somewhere out in Mesopotamia. Okay? <clears throat> so the new heavens and new earth are a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Um, <clears throat> and then it talks about the tree of life. Genesis 2.9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> now, one commentator, and I think he's got a good point, he says that the tree of life is not so much that, that when Adam and Eve uh, ate of the tree of life, that they would, they would grant immortality to them, but rather that the tree of life is that which will, it will prolong life. It will, um, it, you, you have to keep eating of it. All right? You, you eat it and, it, and it, it's kind of a tree of youth, youthfulness. Um, you know, it's, it's one concept of it. So, for instance, in Proverbs 3.18, she, wisdom, is a tree of life. So it's, you know, wisdom is talked of <clears throat> as a tree of life that as we, as we eat wisdom, as we feast on wisdom, it will prolong our life. Genesis 3.22. Um, the man who has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not allow to reach out his hand and also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay? <clears throat> Genesis 3.24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, guard the way to the tree of life. So the idea was that the cherubim had to guard the way to the tree of life so that they would not go back and eat of that tree again and, and prolong their life. So what it did was it brought death to them, um, and that's the whole idea of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then in Revelation 22, it says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the trees, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So the idea is they, that in eternity then, when we go, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, we would go back to that tree of life and there was new fruit every month when we go back and, 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 and eat of that. So anyway, that's one idea of what the tree of life could be. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we don't really know, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get into chapter 3. But if we could summarize it, it's that they ate of wisdom, man, men's wisdom, instead of godly wisdom. And so it's contrasting then godly wisdom with man's wisdom, and they ate of man's wisdom, and of course, that's where the fall comes in. Okay, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. All right? And so it's set, being set up for chapter 3, where they do take of the, of the <coughs> tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whatever it was, it probably wasn't an apple tree, okay? Just, but, but it, whatever it was, they weren't supposed to eat from it. 
And God commanded, it's interesting, God said you can eat from any other tree in the garden. And you can have, you know, perfect communion with God. There's only one thing I don't want you to do. <laughs> Sounds like us with our kids sometimes, doesn't it? You know, just, just don't do this. Well, you know the first thing that's going to happen is your kids are going to go out and do that. Because they're going to test the limits. Well, that's what happened. And mankind fell. So God commanded. He didn't suggest or implore. He commanded. He said, anything else, just don't touch that. Don't eat from that tree. And so man was given a moral choice. Don't do what I've told you not to do. And told him the consequences. If they did that, what would happen? Uh, Galatians 5.1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery mankind fell into slavery and that's exact sin is slavery because we chose that which God said don't do it another interesting question is this where was Eve during all this time I mean, yeah, where was Eve when God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Eve wasn't created yet. This is before Eve was created. So, you know, was Adam supposed to communicate that to Eve? And we don't know what happened. But anyway, Eve had not been created at this point. And so the consequences then for these two was death. And Wenham says, in preferring human wisdom to divine law, Adam and Eve found death, not life. Okay, so what does all this mean to us then, as children of God? It's this, that God's provision also includes accountability. God provides for us, he gives us all the trees, he provides for us in the garden, everything that's pleasing to the eye and good for food, And then he says, but, (laughs) but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So with provision also comes accountability. And this is where, you know, this is where many people, and I would say very much in our generation, say, give me the provision, just don't ask me to be accountable. (laughs) And And so there's something in the heart of man, isn't there, that says, I do not want to be accountable. I want my independence. I want my autonomy. And I'll even sacrifice the provision if I don't have to be accountable. But here's the point. If we don't see God's love and goodness and mercy and grace from the inside of our souls, we will feel restricted instead of protected. All right? Now, why did God give those commands to Adam and Eve. It wasn't so they would be restricted. It was so that they would be protected. God knew what was going to happen if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew the, the, the consequences of that. So our access to the tree of life depends upon our belief in God's goodness. And, and And we as believers, what has happened is that we have had an encounter with an experience of God's grace and goodness and mercy and love. And so we trust 
When God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we say, you know what? God's a good God. And He wouldn't ask me to do that, you know, not to do that, if He didn't want me to be protected. So as believers, we trust in God's goodness because we know that when He says don't do it, it's for our good. Now, as parents, of course, we hope that our kids did that. That That our kids, when we tell them not to do something, they go, oh, yeah, mom and dad said not to do it. I won't do it then. Did it happen that way? Some of the time. Some of the time, yes. Some of the time, no. But what we're really trying to instill in our children is, is that they trust in our goodness and our love and our care for them so much that they say, if mom and dad said not to do it, okay, I won't do it. Now, of course, they're fallen and we're fallen. <laughs> so it doesn't always happen the way that we want it to happen. Um, Tozer wrote, A.W. Tozer wrote this, and I've quoted this before, but it it just fits in so well here, I'm going to use it again. History shows that no tribe or nation has ever risen morally above its religion. And remember that no religion has ever risen above its conception of God. Christianity at any, any given time, strong or weak, depending upon her concept of God. The basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. Our religion is little because our God is little. Our religion is weak because our God is weak. Our religion is ignoble because the God we serve is ignoble. We do not see God as he is. A local church will only be as great as its conception of God. An individual Christian will be a success or a failure depending upon what he or she thinks of God. Hmm. So what we're saying is, if we don't make a transition from what we think God is like to what He is actually like, then we will, we will keep Him at arm's length. And as believers, our, our task is to help people out there who don't know Christ to trust that God is good. And, and to convey an, a, a concept of a good God to them through our lives, through our love, through our goodness, through our care for them. Because what, they're try- what they need to read from us is God is really good. And the difference is that we trust God when I was growing up, um, my brother Tom, he was, I had, have two brothers, and uh, Tom and Bob, and my brother Tom, um, he, he, he was really, in a lot of ways, he was the good kid, okay? He was, he was the firstborn, and, and he was the good kid. And, and one time, um, he was probably 16, 17 years old, and he went to mom and dad and he said, um, you know, I want to go out with my friends. And we're going, we're going, you know, I, don't, I forget where they were going, probably Geneva on the lake. 
uh, which was a you know kind of a a place where a lot of kids would go. And um, they said, "I want to I want to go." And mom and dad said, "You aren't going." No. And you know he was he was angry, and as I say, he was a good kid, but but he uh, he <coughs> he was he was angry. And went back to them, and they said, no, you're not going. Well, the car that, that uh, he was going to ride in with this group of kids got hit by a train, and every single person in that car was killed, young, young, young people. Well, I heard about that a thousand times. <laughs> And when I was growing up, okay, yeah, 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 trust mom and dad because look what happened to your brother, you know, what would have happened to your brother Tom. Well, that's the way that God is, and that's the kind of trust that we need is that God is on our side. He's a good God. He wants you to, he wants to bless you. And, and so, as I say, our job is to convey that to the world. God is a good God. Look at my life. If you want to see God's goodness, look at my life. If you want to see God's love, look at me. Look at, what, look at my, you know, my love. If you want to see God's care for people, look at me and how I care for you. So what I'm saying is this, that one of the most important things that we can convey to the world and why we're put here is to live out what God says to do and show the world that it is good that we serve a good God. Well, that brings us to our time of communion. Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, this, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Interesting. So what Jesus is saying is this. Here's the fruit of the vine, he says, until that new heaven and the new earth are created. He says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until that time comes, and then we're going to eat that together. So part of what we're celebrating with communion is, God created everything perfect in the beginning. There was this whole time, you know, <laughs> all the rest of all, except for four chapters in scriptures, is all about Christ's redemption and Christ is saying, when the next time that I eat of the fruit of the vine, it's going to be with you in the marriage supper of the Lamb, in the kingdom of heaven, in heaven itself. Isn't that an incredible concept? And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. So, we see then redemption will have a consummation in the kingdom of God. And so what we're celebrating is Christ's redemption, we fell, Christ redeemed us, 
and then this will be consummated in the kingdom of God. All of us together celebrating in the kingdom of God. Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life is crystal, crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So what we're celebrating with communion is there's no more curse in the end. That curse is put upon Jesus Christ. When Christ hung on the cross, he took that curse that we see that, that happens in chapter 3, he took that curse upon himself so that we can have the righteousness of God. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So in communion, we are celebrating that that curse was put upon Christ it's all going to be consummated one of these days. We don't know when that's going to happen. But we know it's coming. And we are going to reign with Christ forever in the kingdom of God. That's what we're celebrating with the Lord. In Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So this is, this is a fore, uh, foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb as we celebrate communion together. Kathy? Don't worry, I'm not doing another sermon. Frank did a really nice job. But this is a, a special time, and it's not to be taken for granted. You know... In 1 Corinthians, we read that Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. Don't take it for granted. You know, we do it often. We do it once a month. You know, we um, say the Lord's Prayer. Don't, don't just take these things for granted. As I was reading in the Old Testament, they have a lot of festivals and a lot of feasts. And, and you know, they did those every year so that... In, in Deuteronomy, it's the feast of the Passover, to observe and keep the Passover to the Lord. And they did these festivals in remembrance of what God had done for them, how, how he brought them out of, of Egypt. And, and, you know, they wanted to observe those things because we forget, you know. And, and so they did it on a regular basis, just like we are, so that we can remember to, and, and remember to tell your children and, and your grandchildren, do this in remembrance of me because we forget. Um, it's, it's not, this is a little side thought, it, it's not what's happening today. You know, we are tearing our history down. The children have no idea of American history and the Bible in a lot of times, and there's no remembrance of God's word and what it really is. It's the word of God, so make sure you tell your kids, 
your grandkids, your, you know, your friends. And before we sing this morning, we're going to sing Break Bread Together. And um, when we sing, we're going to prepare our hearts. So if there's any unforgiveness, you know, let's examine our hearts and see if there's anything we need to come to the Lord with a clean heart. And um, the song is Break Bread Together um, on Our Knees, and we talked about that in Sunday school, and we thought, well, if we were to um, break bread together on our knees, we probably would never get up. So we're just gonna, you know, be grateful in our hearts. And um, so um, when we, um, And then we'll come in and we'll, we'll get together and we'll do communion. Um, when we do communion, <clears throat> we will come up this way and in this way for those there's two, two tables. And we will take the bread and we will eat that separately and we'll do that individually. <laughs> Oh 
to the house of the king. No longer an outcast, the new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong. I'm not worthy to be, but praise God I belong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words and the lesson that you brought us today. We thank you. We know that you created us. We know that you had your garden, and it was perfect, and it was where, how and you wanted us to live, and we failed. But then you came back and you forgave us with the gift of your Son. So, Lord, we thank you for the opportunities and we thank you for the forgiveness. For the forgiveness. This we, we lift up in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. God, be with us till we meet again. Peace.